and welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. My name's Aaron Bauer, one of the PGY4 residents here at Yale, and today we are joined by Dr. Muller. We are going to do something a little different today. We're going to try out going through some commonly tested kind of rapid-fire questions focused primarily on epilepsy. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit briefly about, you know, how test questions are actually designed and maybe get a little meta with things. Hello, Dr. Muller. Hey, Aaron. I'm glad to be back reviewing some things with you. And yeah, you and I had discussed, I think, before we started recording that in the context of thinking about what types of things are commonly tested or how questions might appear on the exam, that it's useful actually to get inside the mind of somebody who develops test questions. The people who develop test questions are human beings, just like you and me. And we have strengths and weaknesses. We have biases. We have good days and bad days. We develop good questions and bad questions. And there is a science to this. And there are certain types of questions and ways that questions are constructed. And when you understand that, you might be able to improve your skills and your performance engaging with tests because you can sort of see through some of the distractors. You can see through some of the things that are designed to pull you away from the core of the question and really get at applying the knowledge that you have. And I will say, ultimately, the test questions are getting better, I think, in my experience. I think that people developing tests for high and low stakes examinations have better training. There are often consultants involved in developing the questions. And the real duds are fewer and fewer and farther between. So that your one-liner sort of guessed what guess what I'm thinking question that has almost no practical implications in the real world. Slowly, those questions are moving out of existence, and, and I think that's a good thing. And on the other side, there are very sophisticated test item writers. There are some people who are just really good at developing items. And, and I have some admiration for uh, the people who are really just really develop a gem where there's really no way to game the system. It's not about just knowing how tests are constructed and it's not about test taking skills. It's really about you either have the knowledge or the ability to apply that knowledge or you don't. And so I think in walking through some of this, you know, the ways that tests are developed, we, we can then apply that when we think about commonly tested questions and tested concepts. And I'll start by saying, for those of you preparing for high stakes tests, I would recommend looking at a blueprint, at the blueprint that's offered. So, you know, some common examinations that we talk about uh, could include the ABPN exam in the U.S., or the uh, NBME shelf examinations for our medical students, or the uh, right examination in neurology. These, these tests are all designed around a blueprint, and that's made pretty transparent. And the ABPN, if you look it up, you can find the blueprint, the way in which the test is going to be organized. And it tells you really down to the percent of questions that will cover specific topics. And you can really then plan your studying accordingly. You should look at those topics, look at where you have strengths and weaknesses, and look at where you're going to invest your time. And the ABPN blueprint actually ha it really gets down into the weeds. It's multiple pages and gets down into the weeds to tell you what could possibly be on the table. And for those of you who are as neurotic as, as Aaron, you and I are, it is useful to actually just 
thumb through that. And I remember when I was pre- preparing for high stakes exams, just going through that and saying, well, you know what? I've never seen that word. Maybe I, I need to inform myself about it. Now, if you've never seen the word, the likelihood that it's not going to appear, there's a high likelihood it's not going to appear on multiple test items, but it might occur on one, appear on one. And if it's something uncommon, sometimes those are actually the easiest questions to get right because they're usually straight knowledge questions. The more sophisticated ones are often application of of more widely known knowledge or some nuance of more widely known knowledge. So these are all really great ways to be smart about test taking. And ultimately, I have to say, if you know stuff, then it can help you be a better physician. So, you know, our our intentions are pure in this podcast and in developing tests and in developing better tests that we want to make better physicians. And, and hopefully in the content outlines, you're really seeing what we think a neurologist or a medical student studying neurology needs to know. You know, we talk about test items and they can be broken down into a few categories. There's sort of your straight recall test questions which are really just memorization or recognition of a fact. And I find those not that interesting. So, you know, you can have, what is the most common genetic mutation in Dravet syndrome? And and somebody might know that it's a loss of function mutation of the SCN1A gene. And that's fine. I mean, it's just a straight fact. You press a button and you get a recall. And there will be some items like that because some of that is important. But what is more compelling and more interesting, and I think what you're seeing more and more on really high quality exams is application questions. And so it doesn't depend on memory alone. It depends on recognition of something within a clinical vignette. So instead of asking, what is the most common genetic mutation of Dravet syndrome? You might get a question like, an 18-month-old girl has seizures since age six months. The first event was a febrile seizure, but the child has since had seizures without a fever, including both bilateral tonic-clonic and myoclonic seizures. She's had lagging motor and language development. What is the most likely genetic mutation? And I think there you have to be able to recognize the clinical vignette of Dravet syndrome and then be able to know a little bit more about Dravet syndrome in that the most common mutation causing the syndrome is a loss of function of the SCN1A sodium channel gene. And so recall questions do have their place. They're really good for picking up deficits quickly. You know, I mean, we would want to know, does an upgoing toe indicate upper or lower motor neuron dysfunction? I think we want every neurologist to know that, you know, so you may see some questions like that, that just the committee or whoever's de- developed the exam wants everybody to know, or at least know most of these types of questions. They're great for classroom instruction, right? You know, if you want to do rapid fire call and answer. If you've ever been to any of these larger meetings and there's audience participation types of audience response systems, these straight recall questions are great for that because you you can get through a lot of them in a short amount of time. They're okay for simple concepts, but they're not great for complicated concepts. And they're potentially artificial, right? I mean, there's a risk that if you just have a bunch of recall questions, that 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 you're sending the message that that's what's important you know that remembering every type of genetic mutation is what makes a good neurologist and of course we know that's not the case they can promote really bad study habits and and you know our listeners i think sometimes if they're using older question sets or older sets of flashcards or older study resource materials they may be seeing a lot more of these recall questions and i would caution our listeners who are 
that the movement is towards more application questions. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot more of that in sort of educational practice. And so if you are seeing a question set or some other practice materials that are really focusing mainly on the straight recall, uh, you might want to be cautious about that. That might actually be leading you in the wrong direction. There will always be some recall. You know, it's not, it shouldn't be the, the sole or the majority of what you're reviewing. And, you know, re, straight recall questions really emphasize quantity over quality. And we've talked about this in the flat, uh, in the uh, podcast before. You really want to take deeper dives. As I said, our aim is true here. We really want to focus on making you better physicians in your uh, preparing for practice and, and for your examinations. Applications are great. They keep the clinical context straight uh, in the middle. They promote clinical reasoning and problem-based learning. They're testing something that's a little closer to what we actually do in the clinical context. And you can actually test recall in an application question, as I did. You know, I, I told you about a Dravet vignette, and then I said, now you have to recall what the genetic mutation is, you know, and I would argue that's clinically relevant because it influences our treatment choices, for example. But it takes longer to do application questions. And on the test developer side, it can be hard for us to, to identify specific deficiencies, right? If I gave you that Dravet question, it can be hard to know whether that's because you don't recognize Dravet syndrome or you don't know the mutation. You know, either one of those things could be true. So outside of recall into these applications, are there subtypes of application questions? Yeah, I, I think they can be broken down into general subtypes. And, and of course, I, I, at the risk of oversimplifying it, you know, you might have questions that really focus on a diagnosis, for example, you know, seeing a cl clinical vignette and really what you have to do is recognize the diagnosis. And then you might be asked a question about as straightforward as what does this person have, you know, or you might be asked a question about what other features might help you make this diagnosis, you know, fill in some of the blanks. We sometimes talk about this idea that test takers will have illness scripts in their head, right? They'll have this sense of the illness in their head and that can be more or less specific, right? So you might give a vignette that has limited information, but it's enough for somebody who's very confident in their illness script of a disorder to recognize it. And then you add the, ask them to fill in something else, you know, that, that would clarify it. Or you might have a vignette that's very rich and somebody who has limited illness script specificity has to identify the part that's atypical or unusual about that. So there can be those focused on diagnosis. There can be those focused on treatment. And again, they can sometimes start with a vignette in which you don't know the diagnosis, or they could be they could start with a vignette in which you do know the diagnosis, but you have to know something about the treatment in a particular setting. You know, somebody who's younger or older or who has comorbidities, or who is pregnant, you know, any of those things, and then that can increase the difficulty. Or you could have questions that really are about next steps, you know, and that next step could be another treatment, another investigation, you know, what is the first next step in treatment is, is a common sort of stem of that type, what test would you order next, you know, so these are very real world applicable, because if they're well designed, they really say, well, all of these things that we list in the options could be good options, but which one should you do first? You know, 
An example would be somebody who comes in with what appears to be symptoms of an acute stroke. Would you give TPA first? Or would you do a CT angiogram first? Or would you ensure that you had a good time of onset first? I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but you know, obviously the first thing you'd want to do is actually know about the, the last known normal. So you can think about it. And we're be, when we're being metacognitive, you can think about each, each of these types of questions. And then you start to become really test wise in a way that is not just about gaming the system, but about understanding and getting in the head of the examiner and understanding what the examiner wants to know from you. Okay. And just to review, so for these more problem-based clinical application questions, really the subtypes that we're going to see or run into is going to be those focusing on diagnostics, arriving at that diagnosis, some of the intervention steps, and then ultimately some of these next steps are evaluation-based questions. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think I've said in this podcast before, but we do have some evidence-based ways to approach questions and actually to use questions for your own studying. And the approach I advocate is picking questions that have rich clinical vignettes, you know, those big paragraphs that start with a X-year-old X, you know, uh, presents with blah, 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 and actually covering the question at the end, you know, so covering the the last sentence that has the question mark at the end, looking at the vignette and saying, what do I know about this? You know, is this Dravet syndrome? Is it Lennox Gusto? Why or why not? What about this do I understand? What is divergent and so on? I mean, it takes longer, but it's actually a better way to study. Then looking at the question and saying, oh yeah, okay, they want us to know about the diagnosis, or they want us to know about the treatment, or they want to know about the next steps, then look at the response options. Uh, so make a commitment first, and then look at the response options. And those are those A through E options. Some people, a problematic approach I've seen to test taking is actually looking at the response options first, then going back to the vignette, and then looking at the question, or looking at the response options first, then the question, then looking at the vignette, which is kind of backwards. And really not a great way to study, right? Because you're 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 trying to figure out how to game the system. And as I told you, the system's becoming more sophisticated and better, I think. And it's better for you to just actually use the process of preparing for a test to learn. Uh, so start with the vignettes, figure out what you know, figure out what you don't know, fill in those holes. And then you can then you can start to learn about the the system of how the tests are developed. So I think you did a great summary about, you know, what's been improving in our question making abilities and what you know constitutes a good question these application based questions but for our learners who are out there going through a litany of sources and question sets what would you say would make a bad question what errors would we run into and hopefully be able to identify so we can make a good critical judgment and assessment of our materials we're using yeah, I think this is really important. And I think you should be really, our listeners should be really critical of the resources they're using and look at quality measures. And a couple are, you obviously don't want to have a set of questions or prompts or materials that are really super basic, right? I think if you're a senior neurology resident and the questions are based on is an upgoing toe upper or lower motor neuron, then that's probably not a good set of materials. You know, it's way too basic. So you want to have a sense, did did these writers 
use a blueprint? Did they focus on the blueprint that you're actually going to use for the exam you're taking and so on? Another error that people make is focusing on really small details, these minutiae, these these really less relevant pieces of material. And again, I've said this before, if the materials you have are really focusing on that, it's probably not great. There's a time and a place for minutiae. Uh, I think that, you know, I often advise residents who are preparing for high stakes exams to, you know, have a piece of paper or two or some materials to have those minutiae on them to look at those, you know, maybe cram if it's not something that's part of their usual practice, you know, to pick up a few extra points. But that that shouldn't be most of what you're spending your time on. It's probably important that you don't have a lot of questions that have a lot of potentially controversial answers, where it seems like they're talking about treatments that are only used in one place or or by one group or something like that. Sometimes you have these questions that are sort of interesting, uh, you know, tidbits, you know, these trivia types of questions, but but are obviously not that applicable. And and, and you know, I've seen some materials that have you know interesting historical details. I I, I remember seeing a question set that, you know, it had lots of questions like, who was the first person to describe, you know, such and such? And it's just like, okay, that's kind of interesting, I guess. And we can engage in all sorts of dialogue about the benefits of eponymous terms and the how inclusive or exclusive those things are, but really doesn't relate too much to how effective you're going to be in the clinical realm or questions that are too broad. And I'll give you a, an example of a question that's too broad. I, it's a huge pet peeve of mine. There'll be a vignette, and then it'll be kind of a next steps question, and and they'll list three things in different orders. You know, they'll be like, "What are the next three tests that you need to get?" And it'll be like a CT head, and then a, a blood work, and then a lumbar puncture, and but they'll be in different orders. They'll be like kind of mix and match, and it's just totally distracting and doesn't really test whether or not you know the material. It really tests just how good you are at like process of elimination. And it's like, well, three of these have CT heads, so it's not those ones. And it must be, you know, the one that has different things, you know. So these are things to keep an eye out for. And if you're working from materials that have a lot of these, and, and I'm not advocating for any particular set of materials. I, I think a lot of times, uh, probably the, the companies who make these materials will probably be upset for me saying that, it's less important what exact exact type of material uh, and more important what you do with it, I think, like I said, taking that approach. Um, but but if you're seeing a lot of these problematic questions, you might want to think about another approach. Fantastic. So definitely, first and foremost, is it appropriate to your level of training and the tests you're going to be taking too specific versus too broad or things that are just kind of controversial or maybe like they're regionally specific? So those are really the key things to keep in mind. Yeah, and the minutiae, right? And and <laughs> I've seen examples of this, right? You know, where uh, people know nothing about a particular type of EEG finding, but they know it's going to show up on the exam, so they just memorize that thing. And and it's it's just exactly the opposite of what we intend when we have tests. You know that that we want to actually sort out who's doing well and and who needs more help. Uh, with their clinical work and their medical knowledge. All right. So now that we've gone through a framework of how questions are written, being able to assess good questions versus bad questions, I think we're going to make a bit of a transition to at least going through some of these epilepsy fast facts. How does that sound, Dr. Moeller? I think that's a great idea. Okay. So for each question that we'll do, we'll leave a brief second just for 
everyone to think about a response and then go from there. And then perhaps we'll talk about how we would actually see one of these questions, you know, more framed in the context of our previous conversation. All right. So which anti-seizure medication class generally will make myoclonic seizures worse? Well, I like this one, Aaron. I think this one probably comes up. I know if I was developing test items, I'd probably ask questions. I wouldn't ask a question exactly like what you said, but I might build this into a vignette. So hopefully our listeners were thinking of medications that affect the voltage-gated sodium channels. You know, things like phenytoin, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, maybe lamotrigine, maybe lecosamide even, uh, those types of medications. But if I were developing a question, you know, I might have a vignette, for example, of somebody with JME, right? So you would have to recognize the syndrome of juvenile myoclonic epilepsy and say which medication should be avoided among these. Or Dravet syndrome, as we talked about before. You know, that's a, that's a great example. And so have a vignette of a younger person with early onset febrile seizures and myoclonus, and then say which medication could make this person worse. Or you might have a case of somebody in status myoclonus or, or in some sort of situation where they're having a lot of worsening myoclonic jerks, maybe in the inpatient setting. Which of the medications is most likely to be causing this? You know, those, those would be great types of questions that I might ask that would get to this without directly ask, asking which anti-seizure medication would make myoclonic seizures worse. So ideally, you'd weave in some other piece of knowledge or some other piece of clinical recognition. I think I have indeed seen that exact JME question. Yeah, you uh, know, next... ultimately, we're not that creative, Aaron. I mean, that's what you learn as you start to practice and uh, and do more and more questions is that we all eventually arrive at the same ideas. And it's just because those are great questions to ask. And they weave in some of these common, really important concepts. Couldn't agree more. And then maybe we'll keep going with some anti-seizure medication-related questions. So a simple concept to test maybe would be, you know, which anti-seizure medications are associated with weight gain? And again, we'll talk for a little while, let our listeners test themselves and think about this. Probably most people can come up with one or two. There may be some on the list they haven't thought about as much. Hopefully people are, have thought about valproate. They've probably, hopefully thought about Pregabalin very commonly causes a lot of weight gain. Gabapentin can as well. And carbamazepine uh, is known to be associated with weight gain. Again, I probably wouldn't write a question that just asks this straight up, but I might develop a question in which somebody has undergone bariatric surgery, you know, or some other weight loss surgery and is being treated for focal epilepsy. And then ask which medication might be best to use considering this person's comorbidities. I might have a question that has a couple of different comorbidities, you know, obesity among them, and maybe a couple of other things, and then have a few different, you know, weave in a few different anti-seizure medications and ask about knowledge related to different side effects of each of these, right? So we'll, we'll get to it, but I might ask about you know, might have somebody who has obesity and depression, you know, or somebody with obesity, depression, and myoclonus, you know, so you you could weave in and then actually test a few different 
pieces of knowledge about anti-seizure medications altogether. So on the inverse then, what about anti-seizure medications with weight loss as a side effect, perhaps? Yeah. And, and again, I would not ask these exactly like that, probably. And I think most sophisticated test developers wouldn't. But these are just things you need to know. And when you're developing flashcards for yourself, you might want this knowledge. But probably what, what a sophisticated exam developer is going to do is weave some of these concepts in. So again, have somebody who's underweight or have somebody who is has some developmental delay and has a hard time keeping weight on or has a hard time with appetite or eating or needs to be prompted to eat, you know, and that might be the prompt to say that you might avoid one of these medications or on the other side, have somebody who has is dealing with obesity and wants a medication that definitely doesn't cause weight gain and may be associated with decreased appetite or weight loss. And again, our listeners, I'm buying some time. Our listeners have worked through their list. I hope most of them have come up with topiramate. I think that's probably the most famous of these medications that is associated with decreased appetite and weight loss. Topiramate's cousin Zunisamide is on that list. And less commonly used, but can be associated with weight loss, is felbamate, a much less commonly used anti-seizure medication, uh, but, but something that's on that list and could be considered. All right. So then in terms of some of these questions, maybe where we're thinking of syndromes, perhaps one that comes up with anti-seizure medications is one that's maybe associated with gingival hyperplasia, diplopia, ataxia. How would we phrase these questions? Yeah, Aaron, Aaron, this one's a little too easy because, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the moment that gingival hyperplasia is brought up, I think every medical student starts thinking about phenytoin. But, you know, you might leave that out and talk about diplopia and ataxia and think about categories of medications that might cause that. And that would include phenytoin and other sodium channel modulating agents. And one of the things that I'm very interested in, especially for neurology residents or, or epilepsy fellows, is thinking about what we call rational polypharmacy. So thinking about adding medications maybe with different mechanisms of action in order to avoid doubling down on side effects. And a common category of exam items that might focus on rational polypharmacy would be the principle that if you add sodium channel blockers to each other, there's a very high risk of increasing the types of side effects that are associated with sodium channel blockers. We talked about myoclonus before, but diplopia, blurred vision, ataxia, unsteadiness, slurred speech, all of these sort of cerebellar dysfunction kinds of problems will very commonly, could be seen with any anti-seizure medication, but are very commonly seen with sodium channel blocking agents, especially when you add one sodium channel blocker to another. So the types of questions I might write about or write would be somebody who's, you know, I'd list a, a number of medications they're already on, so maybe somebody with a more severe epilepsy syndrome, include within it a sodium channel blocking agent then add that uh, this person was started on a new medication and now has diplopia, ataxia, which medication is likely to have caused this. 
And then a subcategory of this diplopia and ataxia type of question is the questions about the pharmacokinetics. So questions mm -hmm. getting at pharmacokinetics. So one that I really like would be somebody who's on lamotrigine, for example, but has also been on an oral contraceptive pill. And then you ask which medication did they likely stop? You know, and if they stopped their oral contraceptive pill, then all of a sudden their lamotrigine levels are going to increase dramatically. And they develop that ataxia or they start valproate and all of a sudden that level shoots up and uh, they develop the ataxia. So those are the types of questions I would like. And then with some of the newer anti-seizure medications, there are some pharmacokinetic interactions. Sonobamate, for example, can increase levels of phenytoin. So you might see a question about that. If you start sonobamate, do you see increased phenytoin levels? And, but I might not just say, uh, ask about it, increased phenytoin levels. I might ask about the ataxia, the diplopia, the unsteadiness. So again, those should prompt you to think about higher levels of sodium channel blockers. So maybe going along those lines, what other anti-seizure medications do we generally think about as enzyme inducing? So these would be our questions regarding starting multiple medications, stopping another medication. Yeah, and, and the ways these might be approached in an exam would be, for example, asking about the risk of rendering a combined oral contraceptive less effective, for example, or rendering an antibiotic less effective, or interacting with medications that are enzyme-induced for systemic disease, for example. And so, there again, I'm probably not going to ask which medication is enzyme-inducing. I'm going to ask which of these might increase your risk of contraceptive failure, you know, if they're on a combined oral contraceptive or something. And, you know, the short list is going to be those that are older medications, you know, your carbamazepine, phenobarbital, phenytoin, primidone, which is sort of a cousin of phenobarbital. All of those are really powerful enzyme inducers. At higher doses, oxcarbazepine possibly. We don't use a lot of rafinamide, but that can. And then among the newer guys, sonobamate does have some enzyme induc induction effect. So it can decrease the effectiveness of the oral contraceptive pill. You might see that on an exam because it's a newer medication. Parampanil at higher doses can, so above eight milligrams a day. And there's some controversy about this, but I think for the purposes of test, topiramate at higher doses, uh, so over 200 a day, probably has some enzyme induction and, and should be reconsidered or adjusted with the in the context of oral contraceptive pills or others. So again, you have this list of enzyme inducers, and the question isn't going to be which of these is enzyme inducing. It might be which of these is going to make the OCP less effective, or which of these is likely to interact with something that you know is is a, a substrate of the cytochrome P450 system. And then maybe to round out the anti-seizure medications and some common interactions that are tested, how would we expect to see some sort of interaction between clobazam and then somebody who has started cannabidiol as well? I feel like this has come up a few times. Yeah, so uh, I think this is another one that is useful in the real world and may come up on exams. Cannabidiol, pharmacological grade, high dose pharmacological grade cannabidiol. There's one company that produces such a substance, uh, but we're, we're being assiduous about avoiding uh, brand names, but there's really only one version of this currently high, high dose pharmacological grade cannabidiol. But I do feel the need to make that distinction because we're not talking about the stuff you get at the gas station, you know, infused in your 
God knows what, you know, your beef jerky. The high dose pharmacological grade cannabidiol can result in meaningful increases, sometimes dramatic increases in both clubazam levels, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the N-desmethyl clubazam level, the metabolite, one of the metabolites of the clubazam. And so you do need to know. So a clinical vignette you might get for that would be somebody with Lennox-Gastaut or Gervais syndrome already on clubazam. They start high-dose cannabidiol and they become more lethargic. What should you check? You know, you're going to want to say that you're going to check both the clubazam level and the N-desmethyl clubazam metabolite for example, or or which of these medications is likely to be playing a role. You might you might have a question like that. No, definitely a good one to keep in mind, particularly knowing the metabolite, which maybe is a next step question that people tend to forget. I think for epilepsy, some things that come up and are very testable, and I know we've discussed on prior podcasts as well, are some of these electroclinical syndromes and EEG findings that really have kind of go-to associations and are very frequently tested upon, be it with actual clips and pictures of EEGs or just descriptions. Would you think it would be going worth few some of those quick ones, Dr. Muller? I, th- I think it would. And, and I'll say as a general rule, maybe it's just my bias, but I think these questions often, or the versions I've seen, are actually pretty easy, you know, once you know your electroclinical syndromes. And for an expert, it's usually possible to know what the syndrome is without even looking at the EEG. Uh, or vice versa, knowing looking at the EG and not having any other materials and knowing what they might get at. Um, sometimes, again, the the second tier type of second level type of question would be having a vignette or part of a vignette plus an EEG and then asking about treatment or next steps or prognosis or other clinical features or other EEG findings. Those might be more sophisticated versions of these questions. But I don't want to editorialize too much, but I have been disappointed at the complexity of these questions, which are often very straightforward. A common error I've seen among test takers is getting freaked out by the EEG, right? It's in a different montage than they're used to, or it has a different color or different sensitivities and filter settings or whatever. And they get freaked out. And I'm like, no, just read the vignette. Like, what is that? And usually you don't have to look at the EEG, honestly. Again, I'm not, you look at everything because a sophisticated item writer will throw a curveball sometimes. But but often I think people get freaked out and miss the forest for the trees. No, I would I would definitely agree with you there. The uh EEGs that are out there sometimes are definitely a little interesting compared to what we're looking at standardized, I guess, at our own institutions. But the vignettes usually don't lead us too far astray. So what about some of these common EEG findings, at least that are tested? So maybe a description of hypsarrhythmia and electrodecrement. What are the associations there? How would you see that? Yeah, I think my my suggestion is that you read the prompt. If it's an infant, you're already halfway there, you know, uh, somebody er- very early in life. And then when you look at the EEG, probably the most important thing to look at is actually the sensitivity settings or, or if they have a scale bar for the voltage, right? So our typical sensitivity setting for an adult would be seven microvolts per millimeter. And on the scale bar, it would look like one inch would be about 140 microvolts or something like that, 140, 150 microvolts. And so what you would see that would give you the clue it's hips arrhythmia is that the sensitivity level is at 30 microvolts per millimeter. And that scale bar is 
you know, several hundred, 500 or something like that. So you already know this is a super high voltage EEG. And I would caution our listeners to always look at that scale bar, always look at those sensitivity settings, those sensitivity levels. And then hips arrhythmia, otherwise it's kind of going to kind of look like a mess, right? You're going to see multifocal spikes. You're going to see waves everywhere. And the less time spent scrutinizing it too carefully, probably the better. You know, you look at that sensitivity, it's super high voltage and it looks like a, a totally disorganized, then, then you're done. And again, you should spend your time understanding what West syndrome is, that triad of hips arrhythmia, epileptic or infantile spasms and developmental delay or regression, and think about some of the treatments, right, which are typically ACTH or Vigabatrin, uh, particularly in the subset of patients with tuberous sclerosis complex. I forgot to mention about the electric decrement. It's pretty much exactly like it sounds. So it is the EEG correlate of a spasm of the actual epileptic or infantile spasm, and generally looks like a sudden flattening of the EEG. And that's because all of a sudden, sometimes superimposed on that, there's some low voltage fast activity for sort of the tonic phase of an epileptic spasm. But otherwise, you just see this sudden attenuation or flattening of the background of this high voltage EEG. And those are pretty characteristic. And our listeners can Google some examples of electrodecrement. They're fairly characteristic. So then maybe on to the next one. How about something on the EEG described as slow spike in waves? So we're talking definitely less than two hertz. And then maybe a mention of generalized periodic fast activity. Hopefully, if somebody saw generalized spike wave activity that was 1.5 hertz or slower, usually less regular, you know, less perfect. We call that slow spike in wave. And again, I think we've talked about this on prior podcasts. We call it slow spike in wave in comparison to our typical three hertz spike in wave that we see with childhood absence epilepsy. And then later we'll talk about fast spike in wave, which is sort of the faster frequency that we often see in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy and related disorders. So again, the clinical vignette's usually gonna give you an example. Most vignettes of somebody with this syndrome, which is Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, are gonna have multiple seizure types. They're gonna have really intractable epilepsy. So usually in the vignette, they're gonna be on multiple anti-seizure drugs. You know, that usually gets you about halfway there and you're gonna be primed to look for that slow spike in wave. And you're gonna be thinking about the differential diagnosis of seizure disorders in that age group. But most commonly at the resident level, you're gonna be looking at Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. The slightly more difficult question might focus on giving you a picture of what you what you described, the GPFA, that generalized paroxysmal fast activity, usually in sleep. And this is like this buzz of 12, 14 hertz, sometimes you know around that range, diffuse fast activity that can last a second, two, even longer, often during sleep, and is one of the other characteristic findings in Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So I might like to give a vignette that sounds like LGS, but then show you that GPFA. And that might test a little bit more sophisticated learner. And then ask about treatments, you know, maybe ask about people knowing that broad spectrum anti-seizure medications might be optimal in this case, or rifinamide for drop attacks or something like that in a multi-level question. So I think most of us know about the slow spike in wave that shows up on tests. I think the GPFA, and again, our listeners can Google that. I think that might take it to the next level. And again, to the even next level would be thinking about treatment options. And for, you know, super sophisticated, we could talk about 
other treatments for drop attacks, whether they're corpus callosotomy or DBS, a, a deep brain stimulation. And there's some emerging ideas about deep brain stimulation within the central median nuclei of the thalamus, for example. I don't know if they're going to show up on a, they're certainly not going to show up on a medical student exam, probably not on a neurology resident exam, but just something to think about. No, definitely always more down the pipeline, especially within the neuro neurologic subspecialties, that's for sure. So how about some occipital spikes, maybe a little bit that are occurring more during sleep in a child with some like weird visual descriptions, visual phenomena and vomiting? Yeah. And again, you know, I think you have the child and, and you get the age, like, you know, early school age or something like that and developmentally normal. And you mentioned vomiting or you mentioned visual disturbances. I, you, you might not need the EEG. But I think EEG skills are nice. And if you saw occipital spikes, then with the earlier onset version, you would be thinking about childhood occipital epilepsy or transient epilepsy with occipital paroxysms. There are different names for it. And then the eponymous name is Paniotopoulos syndrome, which we've heard about before. Again, when people are writing a question, they might have the vignette, show the EEG and talk about whether or not this requires treatment, right? Not every patient with this disorder would need treatment. If they do have treatment, they tend to be focal agents, you know, sodium channel blockers, oxcarbazepine, carbamazepine, things like that. So there may be questions around that. Most items that I've seen of this that are in an adult neurology exam are, are straight diagnosis types of questions or basic treatment or prognosis questions. You know, uh, is this kid going to be severely disabled or are they likely going to be okay? You know, something like that. So uh, those would be the types of questions you might see. And then we can't forget the other spike in waves. So we had mentioned the slow spike in wave of being less than two. What about our classic three hertz spike in wave? Yeah, this this is characteristic. And I must say this really stands out. You know, it's generally medium to high voltage. I've heard others describe it almost like strips of wallpaper when you look at each second of this. It's super regular. Just a, a nuance is that it's usually a little bit faster than three hertz for the first second. So it might be three and a half. So don't be fooled by that, but it'll settle into almost exactly three hertz by the second or third second of this run. Often very long runs. And, and those are the correlate of the absence seizure. But you might have a vignette that shows this. And very commonly, this will focus on treatment. And this is a, a disease where we actually have head-to-head -head trials of different choices of anti-seizure medications. And we know that the drug of first choice typically is ethosuximide. Or you might actually add a little twist and say, what is the mechanism of the drug of choice? And talk about how ethosuximide focuses on T-type calcium channels, uh, that is voltage-gated T-type uh, calcium channels. Or you might even add a little nuance and talk about where the greatest concentration of those T-type calcium channels is in the reticular nuclei of the thalamus. This is something that's well worked out. It's physiologic. It's kind of interesting. So there's a few different directions that you might take that picture. And again, a sophisticated question writer might weave that in. Yeah. I don't think on any of my exam preps, I've ever seen a child who actually has ADHD. It's really just always childhood absence. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a red flag, right? When the vignette is the kid sitting in the back of the room not paying attention. And and again, this is where I think assessment aligns with good clinical practice, right? You want to consider childhood absence epilepsy in the kid who's misdiagnosed as having ADHD. And then 
the last spike in wave, perhaps the fast one, so greater than four hertz, maybe a mention of some poly spikes. I, I hate to make definitive statements, but I, I think it wouldn't be a good exam if there weren't a question or two about juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, right? This is a very common disorder. There are ways to treat it well. There are important considerations in the treatment and prognosis of JME. And I think it's totally in play for as a question. So I think it's important from that perspective. And a couple of things that I might throw in to a JME question, again, we talked about before, would be about exacerbations with sodium channel blocking agents, might get into those polyspikes, might get into drug of first choice in men versus women of childbearing potential. You know, in men, valproate is often the drug of first choice. In women of childbearing potential, valproate might be avoided because of the risk of teratogenicity and other issues. You might get into the fact that a significant proportion of people with this disorder are going to have a photomyoclonic response, so they'll have a response to photic stimulation. You might show an image of the photic stimulation with the myoclonic response. I think that would be in play and appropriate and often helpful at establishing the diagnosis. You might have questions about the prognosis. Most people with JME are going to require lifelong anti-seizure therapy. A smaller subgroup might be able to come off of medications. You know, there's lots of different ways that you could go with this, but those would be some that I, I might consider. And then maybe a grab bag of some other associations that come up on tests. And we'll see how maybe we can approach some of these questions as well. So maybe a nice transition out of our EEG findings. What about an EEG with some underlying delta activity and bursts of very fast activity on top, perhaps in the appearance of a brush? Yeah, you know, um, I was there when the term extreme delta brush was coined. I'm not on the paper, but some of my peers uh, from fellowship are. and. You know, we see that at the end stages of, or later stages typically, of NMDA receptor mediated encephalitis. And so this is a commonly tested question. I just hope we live in a world now when NMDA receptor encephalitis is identified early, you know, and I think it's on people's minds when you think of a clinical vignette that might include some of those triggers that make you think about NMDA receptor encephalitis, including unexplained psychiatric and cognitive deterioration, often in a young woman, but not necessarily, uh, could be considered in other age groups, with abnormal eye movements, with other abnormal movements, you know, knowing about the relationship to ovarian teratoma and how that would be the treatment if that's seen knowing that an ovarian ultrasound might be a consider a diagnostic consideration you know knowing that a big chunk of these patients have a normal mri at least initially some of those things are going to be tied together so again the extreme delta brush you know how often in clinical practice is, th is this how we make the diagnosis of an mda receptor encephalitis you know, I hope not very often. I hope we're thinking about this early in people so that they get the right treatment and we're sending the serological tests, right? We're sending the the tests for the antibody in, in the serum or, or in the CSF. And I think questions about that or about the clinical syndrome or about your suspicion are much more important than questions about extreme delta brush. But I guess it's good to know of this relationship. Uh, definitely happy to say I haven't seen any in person. Yeah, Maybe. but I'm sure you've seen some NMDA receptor encephalitis. Hopefully it's been caught much earlier than this. 
Oh, most definitely. And then in terms of maybe kind of along a similar line, and I know Maya Clonus just keeps coming up on this discussion today of very testable questions, but maybe myoclonic jerks involving a specific area, so the face and the upper arm. Yeah, and again, you could develop a really not very good question where you just describe the semiology of these repetitive events that occur multiple times a day or even multiple times an hour, focal seizures with involvement of the arm, the face with this element of dystonic posturing, you know, not responding to multiple anti-seizure medications. And of course, these are going to be your fascio-brachial dystonic seizures associated with encephalitis secondary to LGI-1 antibodies. I think that's an okay question. I think it's pretty low-hanging fruit. I think hopefully most you know, neurology residents would be able to easily identify this. I think maybe a better question might be about the potential treatment, uh, about the associations, knowing that in most cases, this is not perineoplastic, but a primary autoimmune process, about whether or not this is likely to respond to anti-seizure medications. It, it usually won't, and usually requires immune-modulating medications like corticosteroids. Some of these patients will have a limbic encephalitis with abnormalities on MRI, but some won't. You know, there are probably some better ways to do this. Hopefully, you know, you might encounter, our listeners might encounter some straightforward questions where they just describe the syndrome and then say which antibody is likely to be positive. I suppose that's okay. But other times, again, if you were being a little, if you were being a little more sophisticated about wanting to test a few more things, you might talk about treatment. So how about one thing that maybe comes up and isn't frequently thought about in people with refractory status, maybe a vitamin that can be associated with treatment consideration, maybe a little bit more so in our in our pediatrics friends. I think what we're talking about here is vitamin B6, which is pyridoxine. And I'm not a child neurologist, but a way that a question might be constructed would be what's the next best step, you know, in, in somebody with refractory status that has not responded to typical anti-seizure medications. And if it's a child, you might want to check and make sure it's not pyridoxine-associated seizures, for example. So I think just having on your radar that children with new-onset refractory status epilepticus of unknown cause, that one of the things that really has to be considered before you move on will be a a pyridoxine-responsive seizures. So that's usually how those questions will be constructed. Then how about some more atypical presentations, but for some reason highly testable. So maybe somebody with seizures, uncontrolled laughing, giggling, what could that be associated with? How would that be well phrased? Yeah. And you know, I think some exams are moving towards incorporating video material. And I think these would be a good example of this would be an eminently testable type of item. Obviously, this is an audio format, but hopefully our listeners have identified that uncontrolled and it's often called mirthless laughter. There's not the affective component of thinking it's funny. It's just sort of the mechanism of laughing. These are called gelastic seizures. And a common association is hypothalamic hematoma. And there may be additional questions, uh, depending on the sophistication of the exam, about the treatment. And in many cases, the treatment would be something like laser ablation of a hypothalamic hematoma, which is sort of a less invasive treatment than sort of open resection, you know, that, that that might be one of the things that's tested. So those would be the types of questions that are tested. And again, one thing we might see 
Aaron, is more seizure semiology being tested by video on exams? I, I don't know that for sure. I'm, I'm not involved in that process, but I wonder, and I think that would be eminently testable. Definitely could agree there. And maybe if we're thinking about seizure semiology, what about if they played a video of a figure four sign? Where could that possibly localize to? Yeah, I think this is a neurologic classic. And so the figure of four sign is tonic extension and elevation of one arm usually and flexion of the contralateral arm to the point where it looks like the number four. And again, I think our listeners could Google this to look it up uh, and see pictures of this. And it occurs, very importantly, it occurs just before the onset of the bilateral tonic-clonic phase of a seizure with a focal onset. So it's a focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. And the figure of four has to happen just before it goes on to that. It's at the start of the tonic phase of a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure, which has a focal onset. The tonic extension and elevation, the straight part of the four, is due to relatively higher activation of the hemisphere of onset. And so it really tells you that the tonically extended and elevated arm localizes to the contralateral hemisphere. So it gives you a sense that the likely onset of the seizure, if you have a tonically extended and elevated left arm, then you know that the seizure likely has an onset in the right hemisphere. And again, it's hard to imagine how you might develop a four or five item multiple choice question or, you know, a five uh, possibility multiple choice question when it's just left or right. But, you know, you could throw in non-localizing. You could say that this doesn't matter. You know, there are some ways that you could put this together. But I would recommend that people recognize this as a as a possible option. It may be a little bit less of a common one, but how about somebody with a postictal nose wipe? Oh, I really like the postictal nose wipe. And again, I think this could be a video. It could be an image, right? You could have an image of somebody wiping their nose with one hand. And the postictal nose wipe actually localizes ipsilaterally and typically temporal. So you could develop an item that has temporal and occipital and or, or frontal and then left and right and say, choose the best option, left frontal, right frontal, left temporal, right temporal. I, I haven't written such a question, but one could. The idea would be that at the end of the seizure, after it's over, typically after a focal onset seizure, usually a focal impaired awareness seizure, at the end, if it's a temporal lobe seizure, the thought is that you might have some increased sensation within the nas nasopharynx or maybe some increased autonomic activity within the nasopharynx, and that leads you to be prompted to wipe your nose, and that you're relatively more paretic on the side opposite, uh, contralateral to the hemisphere of seizure onset, right? If your seizure onset was on the right side, then after the seizure is over, there's usually more suppression of brain activity on the right hemisphere, and therefore the left arm is a little bit weaker or a little bit less active. So you will likely wipe your nose. More often than not, you're going to wipe your nose with the right hand, which is the ipsilateral hemisphere. And so a postictal nose wipe usually localizes to the ipsilateral temporal lobe. And again, if this showed up in a video or an image or something like that, my, my guess is that the response options would be fairly straightforward and you just have to recognize this. This could be uh, what the kids call high yield. No, most definitely the case and not one that I was as familiar with, to be frank. So 
I think those are most of the quick associations we wanted to go through. I think we had a really fruitful discussion about how questions are developed, what makes a good question, how you can screen for bad questions, bad resources. Do you have any other lingering thoughts or concerns, Dr. Muller? No, I I think it was a good discussion. Obviously, we weren't being completist here, but we were we thought this was a different approach we could take to talk to our listeners about how the sausage is made and how to take that into account in their preparation. I'll say it again, I think, you know, our intent is not for people to game a system or somehow move past things without actually studying, but to use tests and use items to become better, to get generate better knowledge that's more clinically applicable and that's going to result in better care of their patients. And, and I think we're entering an era where we understand about the importance of test-enhanced learning and retrieval practice and how those help with learning and, and embracing the idea that assessment can drive learning and can drive good learning if it's developed well. Hopefully, we're reaching the end of these obscure, low-quality items that really only tell us who's the best at gaming a test and don't tell us who has the best medical knowledge or the best ability to apply it. No, definitely. We can keep the trivia for game shows and bar nights. <laughs> Sounds good. I think that's a, that's a perfect idea. Let, let's leave the trivia to Jeopardy. Sounds good. Thank you as always, Dr. Muller. I hope you have a good afternoon. You too. Take care, Aaron.